You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, why don't we all stand to our feet for today's text. Fifth day of creation, fifth sign in John's gospel. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And now the fifth sign in John's Gospel of the Cross. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. He's like, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. <laughs> how boring of a person are you if that's what you're focusing on in that particular moment? We're going to talk a lot about that. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them because, like Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but division. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Heavenly Father, we pray that you anoint this room to make preaching easy and hearing your word a delight. We thank you for all you've done, what you're doing, and what you will do. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Anthony. I'm just kidding. I like you anyway. No one's perfect. So we're in the middle of our Let There Be Rest series where we have this week and next week it's over. And conveniently, the final sermon on rest takes place on Labor Day weekend, which I think is amazing. And that'll be next week. And then we jump into the fall calendar. Nobody lives in the Hudson Valley for any other reason than September, October, November, and December. Well, you know, I live here because my parents... No, no, that's not true. If it wasn't for September through December, none of us would live here. It would be empty. This is the best time of the year coming up. That's not my opinion. It is a scientific fact that these next four months are the best four months in any place, and we happen to live in the best of all those places. 
But here's the reality. We've been learning this summer that simple delight in our taking time to delight in God during our work opens us to the life of God in our work. So that rest doesn't always have to be something that happens apart from work, but rest can be an ever-present reality in our work. So now that we're heading to the season where work picks up, we want to enter it as Sabbath people, not people always looking forward to a day off, but people who feel the sense of God's rest even in the mundane and exhausting tasks of the day. What I'm praying is that when we enter this season where the church calendar picks up again and there's events and there's meetings and there's things to do, that we don't relegate church to the to-do list, the thing that needs to get done so that we could finally have time to ourselves. My prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit works in your life in such a way where, like it was for me for all of these years, that the church and its functions are actually what you would consider to be a hobby, what you would consider to be exciting and the reason why you work, the reason why you have means is so that you can then be part of the body of Christ where Jesus shows up, where we get together to try and figure out strategies for touching and healing a broken world, where we experience the grace of God in in a myriad of ways. And here's what I'll say. If Sunday morning and maybe the larger events are what we put the emphasis on. And then the smaller events that come in the church calendar are just sort of like, I'll get there if I can. Here's what we're doing. We're exalting main events, and we are ignoring secondary events. That will actually begin to show up in your life. You will be great at handling marquee things when they happen and fall apart in the day-to-day mundane reality. 90% of life is the day-to-day mundane reality. And if we're only main event people, and we're not crumbs and bubble people, we'll be great at emergency, and we'll be terrible at just what happens tomorrow in its vanilla boringness. And so here's what I want. I'm going to start putting a little pressure on. I want us to be people who enjoy what it means to be in this building and be part of the activities that go on here simply because I know it's what's best for you. I know it is. So with that said, here's a few things coming up in September, and this has a lot to do with what we're talking about today. And from the rousing applause, I know, like, I, I don't even need to talk about this right now. Everyone is just amped and excited about it. We have Lyft and 318 starting again in September, and... Yep, yep. Jacqueline is going to be talking about encounters with Jesus, and I'm going to be talking to the men about what it really means to be a rock for your family and for your church. What it really means to be a rock. Not what outside says. When you, when you study what happens with rocks in the wilderness, that's what it means to be a man. It's not just being strong, but it's also being able to be struck. I'm not going to give the whole thing up, but men... I want you to be a part of that. I'm doing a series in September called Salem Tabernacle, A Convergent Christian Community. P 
people are always asking, what is our vision? Who are we really? Can you please explain to me what all of this stuff is? And I don't want to teach this from an academic point of view. I want to teach this from my heart. I want to talk to you about how I, on a personal level, not just a theological one, but on a personal level, what do I think about Salem? What do I think about this church? Who do I want us to be as a convergent Christian community? And so we're going to take a Sunday for each of these, and right in the middle of that series, Bishop Quentin Moore is going to be here on September 21st to talk to us as well. We have September is intentional, where if you are part of this body, we want to start being very clear about who we are and what we believe. And with that said, I'm going to make a little bit of an addendum. Last week, we had the at the door meeting where we got together for a time of open discussion. I put my hand into the basket and I took out the first two questions. There was about 14 questions in there. And I took out the first two. And one was, what do you believe about salvation? And the other one was, what do you believe about free will? Simple. Very, very simple. 120 minutes went by super fast. And when I went back up to my office, I read the rest of the questions. And I just don't think it would be fair of me to not have a quick part two to that. Because there was questions about, how do we, what do we believe about the LGBTQ community? It's important that we talk about that. What do we believe about reading the Bible? How should we read the Bible? Where does the authority of Scripture come from? And so my commitment is, and this is only if you want to. This is not what I'm talking about for September. That's putting my foot down. What I'm talking about for this Tuesday night at 7, if what I just said is interesting to you, if you want to have that discussion with me, you can come here, 7 o'clock, downstairs, I'll be here. We'll talk through those things. I think it's very important, too. Um, but when we hit September, we have to do exactly what the Holy Spirit said. We have to be passionate. We have to be excited. LTGs are starting again in September. And they're going to move us right through the Christmas season. I mean, this is going to be a powerful time in the church. And the church calendar is what gives us ways to Sabbath during the week. It is what gives us moments to Sabbath. I don't have time to get together with people. The church provides that time for you. It's very important that we get together and that we know who we are, what we believe, what our mission is, where this church is heading, what it's doing, all this kind of stuff. We're going to lay that out in September and October and November and make sure that we know who we are when we begin to enter the new year on December 1st. Yes, the Christian New Year on December 1st. I am just really feeling this like great vibe between us this morning. I'm very happy about it. So let me just move on with the sermon and just, you know, I'll stop acting like a principal for two more weeks. Birds and fish. The next day of creation, day six, God is going to tell us to have dominion over the fish of the air and the birds of the sea. So the first creatures he makes are fish and birds. And then he's going to tell us the next day that we are to have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. And this really was amazing to me because he's already told them to be fruitful and multiply. So having dominion over something doesn't mean getting it to work. Just think about being a parent for a second. Having dominion doesn't mean trying to get something to work because God already made it work. So having dominion has to be something other than constantly prodding something to work better. He's already told them to be fruitful and multiply. So dominion doesn't have to do with us telling them what God's already told them. And here's the other thing. Dominion 
also can't mean domination or control because birds and fish are creatures that we can't readily get to without traps. I mean, I think that's a fair point. The only way you can coerce a bird or a fish is to pretend you're giving it something good and then yank it out of the water and eat it. So dominion cannot be coercion. If we're supposed to have dominion over birds and fish, and God knows that we can't get to them to control them, except if we deceive them with something good, then what does dominion mean? If dominion isn't getting something to work, and dominion isn't coercing something or controlling it, which is to say dominating it, then what is dominion? And I think it's amazing that God creates these two beings on this particular day and then the next day tells us to have dominion over them because he's giving us a way to assume and to see that dominion isn't manipulation. Dominion isn't domination. Dominion isn't coercion. Dominion isn't showing something good, putting bait on a hook just to make somebody or some person think that you're there to feed them, but really you're there to control them. So what is dominion? This is going to be a long sermon, let me tell you. I'm feeling the love in the room. What is dominion? Let's talk about what Jesus reveals versus what I just said. So there is coercive domination or there's graceful dominion. Coercive domination seen in the disciples. Here's where we see coerciveness. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Accusation is one of the ways that we coerce and dominate people because accusation is seeing the hardship as a result before we see it as an opportunity. This person is blind, and before I see a blind person as an opportunity to shed the light of the gospel, I'm asking who sinned, this man or his parents? Because when we are in that season that we talked about in the worship service where we're on with Jesus, we see hardship in somebody's life as an opportunity. But if we've grown stale, if we've lost some of that love, some of that fire, we start to see hardship as the result of something they did. And so we coerce people with accusation. Accusation absolves us of fear. If I can find something they did wrong to be blind, then that means I can do something right to not go blind. If I can find something that she did wrong so that her marriage fell apart, I could not do that thing to ensure that my marriage won't. If I could find a reason why that person at a young age got killed in a car accident, if I could find something that their parents did wrong, then I can do that thing right and avoid that happening. Accusation helps us deal with our own fears. Because if we could point to why something went wrong, then we could kid ourselves into thinking that we can do that thing right and not have to face it. Accusation also absolves us of responsibility. You're blind because you sinned, and therefore it's on you. I don't need to help this person because it's their own fault. They're poor because they're just not hardworking. They're, they're blind because they've done something wrong. Their marriage is falling apart because they've been bowing to the spirit of Jezebel, and all of a sudden the spirit of lust just came and infiltrated the marriage. And if we find stuff people do wrong, we can excuse ourselves from having to help. It's their fault. It's not really a poor person. It's just someone who's never doing the right thing, so therefore I can walk away with peace of mind. 
Jesus on the Emmaus Road with the disciples. They're going the wrong way. And he doesn't correct their behavior with accusation. He corrects their behavior with revelation and food. He reveals himself to them and then dines with them. And they turn around and come back. The younger brother's father in the story of the prodigal son, he doesn't get that son to come back through coercion and accusation. He gets him to come back because the father knew that boy knows I love him and one day he'll come to himself and come back. My love is going to be present with him even if my physical body isn't. That's the disciples, the Pharisees, coercive domination with the Pharisees, legislation, seeing law as able to produce rightness. No law in the Bible or any other country's constitution in and of itself is inherently good. Even Paul said, even the divine law brought death. Jesus is what frees people from law. If we think that having right rules in our home, right laws in our country produces righteousness, we're wrong. We're legalists. Now, this a whole other sermon about why they're good and why they're important, and I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is hope in legislation is idolatry. Using legislation to contain things and keep them organized so that there's space to have good things happen is very wise. But hoping in it, in and of itself, is idolatry. Hope in moralism causes us to ask who sinned, this man or his parents. Hope in legislation causes us to say, wow, Jesus healed the eyes of somebody who was blind for 40 years, but he did it on the Sabbath. Let's focus on that. But a lot of us fall prey to this. Maybe, maybe there's some parents out there, your kids are making terrible choices. In the middle of making a particular bad choice, maybe let's just think of something easy. I'll think of something I did. You tell me to come home by midnight. I come home at 3 o'clock in the morning. Now mom and dad, whatever, dad, you're mad at me. And then maybe that Monday or Tuesday, I bring home a report card. And I got straight A's, which never happened. But let's say that that's the case. And my parents cannot be excited about the A's because of the thing I did wrong over the weekend. The spirit needs to fill that situation. We have to be able to be people who can grieve and at the same time celebrate, even if it's within the same person. But if we are all about rules, we're going to get tripped up over the rules that are broken so much so that we can't celebrate things that went right. And that kind of person is going to exhaust people. There's no Sabbath there at all. Rule keeping makes people predictable and gives the illusion that we're righteous. And here's the reality. Sin is not in anything physical that happens. Adam and Eve didn't sin for the first time when they ate the fruit. That's not when they sinned. Eating the fruit is the result of the sin that wanted to do what God told them not to do. Jesus proves this in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, if you think about somebody and curse them out in your mind, you've murdered them. Like I said a few weeks ago, I'm a serial killer. I've probably killed most of you in this room at one point or another. Sorry. I'm sure I've been dead a bunch of times too, judging from the looks on everybody's face right now. I'm getting murdered as we speak. This is what it feels like to get shot at by eyes. Sin is in the want to, not the action. 
So merely getting somebody to stop performing an action doesn't mean you've done anything about the sin. Sin is in the want to, not the just did. The action is the result of sin. Stopping actions is not stopping sin. It can contain it so that you can work on the sin. It's like setting up boundaries around a piece of, like when when they put up cones in the road all the time on a bridge. Bridges are 24-7 having construction. And they block off a lane. Blocking off the lane is not inherently good. Can I get an amen from somebody? But it's necessary so they can work on what needs to be fixed. Rules work like that. They block things off so that work can be done, but the rules are not the work that needs to be done. Rules keep things contained so that work can be done. Maybe the city of Beacon celebrates this, but I wouldn't celebrate the fact that we just blocked off the road. Yay, we're done. No, now work needs to get done. Money needs to be spent. Things have to happen. So what does Jesus do? How does Jesus fix this? First thing I want to say is this. Every time in Genesis that God is going to create something, he speaks to the source. He spoke to the ground and said, let the ground produce plants and fruit after their own kind. And then he speaks to the air and says, let the air teem with birds. And then he speaks to the seas and says, let the sea be filled. Do you notice? Every time he creates something, he speaks to the source. He speaks to the ground to create plants. He speaks to the air to create birds. He speaks to the water to create fish. So on day six, when he creates us, he speaks to himself. Let us make man in our image. The thing created always comes from the source. And so when it comes to us, he speaks to himself. Ground produce plants. God, me, produce people. And so we have to be his image. So what does Jesus do with graceful dominion? First, instead of accusation, he pays attention. I love the opening line. It says that Jesus saw a blind man. Please hear what I'm about to say. He saw a blind man. That juxtaposition is amazing. Blind man couldn't see, but Jesus saw him. The disciples immediately see a result. Who sinned? But Jesus saw him. As I've said before, that is not a sexy revelation by any means, but honestly, that is maybe one of the most important things I've said this year, is that when we see somebody, we shouldn't see the end result of what we think they've done right or wrong. We should see them them first because here's what Jesus says please hear what I'm about to say Jesus says he didn't sin and his parents didn't sin but he's blind so that the works of God and the glory of God could be seen in him and we've taken that to mean the healing none of what Jesus says before or after that would ever jive with that Here's what Jesus is saying. I stopped and saw him. I'll, I'll use Anthony as a prop because he's obviously blind with the teams that he roots for. Everyone walks by Anthony and says, who sinned, Anthony or his parents, that he would be born a Yankee fan? <laughs> and Jesus stops and just sees Anthony and says, no one sinned, not even him. And this is, this is me convicting myself about making fun of him now because I just realized I just stepped in a hole. So here we go, in front of everybody. We're having a great therapy session here. Jesus says his blindness is the glory of God. 
I stopped and looked at him because I saw the glory of God when I walked by him. The least of these is the glory of God. The poor, the marginalized, the prisoners, the naked, the hungry, the thirsty are the glory of God. Jesus isn't saying he was born blind so that I could heal him. Jesus is saying his blindness is to you the glory of God. If you can't see the least of these, you won't be able to see me. Because what is Jesus' glory? Hanging on the cross, marred unrecognizably. That's the glory of God. So if we can't see the glory of God in blind eyes, we won't be able to see the glory of God on Good Friday. The blind man's blindness is a sign to disciples to say you don't coerce people and have dominion over them and try to make them right. You serve them by seeing the glory of God in whatever state they happen to be in because Jesus does. He is in my image. Behind the blind eyes, behind the brokenness is my image, and that's what stopped me in my tracks. Jesus walks on the road. He has things to do. He's busy, and he walks by this blind person and stops and says, oh, there's my father. I see him. There I am. I see me. The disciples see the end result. Jesus sees the glory of God in what's broken. Saints, we will turn the world upside down if we can start to do that. Turn the world upside down if we can start to do that. Jesus gives the man responsibility. We've all said it before. You know what? There's a lot of people out there who are just in their own mess because they're not working hard, because they're not doing what's right, and that's why they're in their own mess. And here's the thing. Jesus, this is such a perfect fullness. Jesus gives the person something to do. He says, go wash in the pool, and then you'll see. He gives him responsibility, yes? But he doesn't give him responsibility before Jesus does the thing that Jesus needs to do so that the man can actually handle his responsibility. The rich have a responsibility to act on behalf of the poor to enable them to then have responsibility. That's what we see here with Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He does something so lovely that I pray he does to all of us. He spits at the guy. Makes mud. Puts spit and mud on the guy's face. That's not weird. Look what Jesus is doing to this man. He's setting us, Jesus is setting us up for failure. He is already taking somebody who's marginalized and destitute, spits on the ground, puts mud on the guy's face, and then tells him to go break the Sabbath. Jesus, I'm supposed to sit here until tomorrow and not do anything. Here's what I'm telling you to do. I'm going to spit at you. I'm going to rub mud in your face. And then I'm going to send you off by yourself to go work on the Sabbath. Watch what's happening here. This man is walking from the side of the road to the pool, blind, Bumping into stuff, spit on his face, mud all over, breaking the Sabbath. No one looking at him would ever have said, this man has been with Jesus. So I say to you, next time you see somebody, maybe your own child, a coworker, or a friend, walking around, breaking rules, with mud and spit on their face, don't judge them just yet. And yes, I did say breaking rules. Sometimes somebody's breaking one rule to fulfill righteousness in another area, and all we could do is harp. Well, they broke the Sabbath. What's going on behind the mud? 
I think the Spirit wants to talk to us about. We might see mud on our children's faces. Holy Spirit, before I judge the mud, you put it there? They didn't come home on time. Am I supposed to act on this one or wait? Is something bigger happening than just this one broken rule? And maybe you're all over yourself. Maybe you live in perpetual guilt because you just, all you can see, and you're, you just beat yourself up every time something goes wrong. I'm saying, can you see beyond the own mind on your own life? All you're looking at is the fact that I keep breaking the Sabbath. I have mud on my face. I have spit on my face. I'm so dirty. I'm all this kind of stuff. Maybe Jesus is behind the mud. Don't judge yourself so harshly right away. Get to the pool. I would have judged him so hard. Dude was crazy before. Now look at him. Like, maybe Jesus is behind the Yankee jersey. Ain't nothing. What else does Jesus do? Graceful dominion is attention. But it's also connection. The man gets kicked out of the synagogue for breaking the Sabbath. We used to say back in like 2005, we're not religious, we're Christians. We don't go to church, we are the church. It needed to be said, but I don't think we need that cliche anymore. Because the reality is, what the Pharisees did, we would call religious. That's the religious spirit. No, it's not. That's an irreligious spirit. A religious spirit is a spirit that binds people to Christ. An irreligious spirit is a spirit that binds people to human authority. They kick him out of the synagogue because he washed his face in a pool and got healed. He's sitting by himself. No one's celebrating his healing with him at all because he broke a rule. And where's Jesus? Jesus finds him and says, I'm the one who healed you. It's funny, the guy never saw Jesus until that moment. All he felt was mud. And when his eyes opened, he didn't know where Jesus was. Jesus waited until he got kicked out and then went to the place where people are kicked out and befriends them there. I want this to be that place. I want Salem to be the place that people out there get kicked to so we can meet them. I want this church to be one person who's always going, not to the places where things seem to be going the most right, but the places where people are the most hurt. And not judging the mud, because here's the reality. Here's what dominion is. Attaching yourself to somebody else's mess and getting dirty with it. Jesus says, here's what I think about your blindness. I'm going to get myself and your blindness all mixed up. So the world doesn't know where your blindness begins and where myself ends. I'm going to be so dirty with what you're dirty with. I'm going to be all up in your mess. Rowan Williams says, we, we live in the community of the soil with each other. And then he says, you stay in the soil long enough until something starts to grow. We can't stand over here, get cleaned up, and then you can have a share with the saints. Sabbath rest opens us to Jesus, and it lessens our need for force. 
It lessens our need for force. If we're constantly raising our voice, if we're constantly offering false rewards to draw somebody in and then we finally got them where we want them, if we're constantly yelling, if we're being physical, if we're using our words like fists, if we're doing those things, we're using force, we're dominating, we're not exercising dominion. But to not use force means things go wrong for a little bit longer. You can use force and things can go right. But it doesn't mean inside they're as right as they look on the outside. It's an illusion and it helps us sleep at night. But it's not true. I have talked to somebody in this church, a couple people, who have situations at home And they're saying, Pastor, I feel like I'm supposed to just sit and wait in this. And it feels like I should be kicking somebody out or I should be barking orders or I should be making them do this or that. And I just feel like the Spirit is telling me to wait. And here's what I love about that. That seems like the person's being lazy, but do you know how much work it takes to wait when you could give a command and kid yourself into thinking things are better? It's lazy to use force because when you, when you use force, you're being lazy with your own character. You're being lazy with your own character because if my character is right, I don't need to use force to be influential. So how do we enter into this kind of Sabbath, the Sabbath that frees us from having to use force? Can we see the glory of God in brokenness? How do we do that? We come to the table and we see the glory of God in broken pieces of bread. You didn't see that one coming, did you? It's the punchline to every sermon I'll ever preach for the rest of my entire life. If I'm preaching on a Sunday... The punchline to the sermon is the Lord's table every time. Jesus says, come and see glory in brokenness. Come and see glory in what is spilled and broken. If we can learn to see it in the basket, we'll be able to see it in the person sitting next to us, in the church that we go to, in the pastor that we have, in the bosses that we have, in our political leaders. What if we learn to see the glory of God behind the brokenness and then actually we're able to handle the brokenness with grace instead of force? Listen to me. There's a voice out there that started. There's a very liberal voice out there that started as the voice for the oppressed. And it's turned into the newest hate group. That's not good. It started out as people of privilege see people who aren't privileged. That's true. You all know I believe that. But when the voice for the oppressed turns into the same angry voice at the people that they're yelling at, when hate starts to rise up in the people who are advocating, that's a power. That's demonic power. Force is never the answer. Force may contain things in emergency situations, but it itself does not bring righteousness. What did Jesus say? This is, this is why I can preach confidently here. Jesus said, don't you know I could call 12,000 legions of angels to come and rescue me? 
I can use more, I have more force in my pinky than you could do if you mustered up all the armies around and I'm not calling any of them because force is going to destroy me and that's how I'm going to destroy force. When we start thinking that enforcing rules brings righteousness, we'll end up doing what the Pharisees did. Starting off right and then telling Pilate, he's no friend of Caesar, we are. And we'll put the church and we'll get the church in bed with any country's government and they'll sleep together and produce craziness. Can't let it happen. If we're really going to be the church and have it not be a cliche, we lay down force. But that means things are going to keep going wrong. Yeah, yeah, Jesus had a pretty bad day on Friday. He had a pretty bad day on Friday and changed the world on that bad day. Do we have to enforce things? Yes. What I'm saying is, if we think the actual enforcing of something is the goodness, we're wrong. It might create space for it, but it itself is temporary. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The swords will be beaten to plowshares. We should start using tools that will be here in eternity, not tools that God is going to get rid of in eternity. If one day swords are going to be beaten to plowshares, maybe we should just pick up plowshares now. August 25th, Pastor, what are you doing? It's still summertime. Let's stand to our feet. You know what I'll do? Looking at me all angry. I'll have you all come to the table, and then you could just talk to Jesus about it. We'll start with, Ian, we'll start with the Lord is here. We'll start with the Lord is here. His words are better than ours, so let's say them together. The Lord is here. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Holy Spirit, I pray that a spirit of thanksgiving would come over all of us. We're so inadequate to assess on our own without you. I just pray that we'll look at the brokenness in our lives. And before anything else, we'll see your glory in it and be thankful before we go to work on it. I pray that thanksgiving will always go first. And all the work we do will happen inside of thanksgiving. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn and proclaim the glory of your name, saying together, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal Son, to share our human nature, that's dominion. To live and die as one of us, that's dominion. To reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He didn't send Jesus to be forceful. He sent Jesus to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to the Father. Here's how he did it. 
he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your perfect will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus got forceful and yelled at his disciples, no, he took bread. And when he had given thanks on the night when he was betrayed, when he was thankful, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and fed them. (laughs) Holy Spirit, when opposition rises up against us, give us the grace to serve those in opposition, to feed them, to love them, to be thankful. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And again, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. I love how Jesus said to those who are there, your sins are forgiven. And then he said to those who aren't here, your sins are forgiven. Therefore, because of that sacrifice, we proclaim the mystery of the faith together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension. We offer you this gift of bread and juice. When we offer God something, he doesn't keep it. He gives it back to us in a way that is unimaginably different than the way that we gave it to him. Sanctify the bread and the cup by your Holy Spirit, that it may be for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And in the same way, Father God, that you're going to fall on this broken bread, I pray that you fall on all the broken pieces in this room and sanctify our brokenness and make it for the world, the body of Christ. I pray that we won't, that, that won't just be a punchline, Father God, that we are your body, but we would walk out of here knowing that sacramentally we are the very body of Christ that people are going to interact with this week. All this we ask through your son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. And everybody said, amen. And now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. are the gifts of God for the people of God. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to a table of brokenness and see the glory of God. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.